Hi, everyone. Welcome to Let's Talk About Skills, baby. I am your host, Kelly Ryan Bailey. Each week, I chat with inspiring visionaries about the skills that make them successful, how they developed those skills, and their innovative approaches to improving skills-based hiring and learning around the world. Come learn what skills help you live your best life. This week, I'm joined by Andrew Malley. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, hello. Yes, good to see you, Kelly. <laughs> Same. Let me give a quick introduction to Andrew. Andrew is an experienced higher education leader with over 18 years of experience in education globally in both the public and private sector. He is a graduate of the University of Liverpool in the UK and a qualified teacher in languages. He has worked, lived, and led projects in South Korea, Turkey, Italy, the UK, India, the US, and across Africa as a teacher, manager, and director. He taught and led in education around the world. He has firsthand knowledge of the positive change and empowerment that education can provide to individuals and communities. As a leader in the establishment of DHGE, as we finally fondly call them, but it's Dignity Health Global Education, Andrew firmly believes in providing high quality and work-based learning to the healthcare workforce. He understands the great impact industry and higher education can have when they work together in an effective and, excuse me, effective, cohesive, and innovative way. I really appreciate how um, this is described because like we obviously know now that we're like <laughs> so on par with each other, but um, Andrew, like this is great. And, and I, I know I didn't say this, but Andrew is the, the, C, the CEO, correct? Of mm -hmm. Dignity Health Global Education. So I don't want to forget to mention that. Um, really fantastic organization that is leading the charge in some great new and interesting things. But let's kind of start, let's take a step back, Andrew, tell us a little bit about what led you here today, because all of the, I didn't even know you had all of this background. I'd love to know more. Well, it's interesting you ask that question because I sort of told some of this story the other day to the people, the, the team at the office, thinking it'd be a lovely, inspiring story. And I told it. And then their response was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> your first skill, baby, as a leader is don't think you're more interesting or special than you really are. It is Stay a humble, point. right? Stay so humble, that's a, that's a, that's a, for sure. Skill to learn. But um, <clears throat> I'll try and tell a better version. Um, so basically, I uh, grew up in, in, in the UK, um, primarily in London, and then later on, sort of near Cambridge. And academically, did okay, but knew that I wanted more. I didn't just want to, you know, stay local you know, like a lot of my friends were doing. So I went to the University of Liverpool, somehow made it to university. And uh, again, never did too much, too well, kind of breezed through it, you know, typical kind of student, more concentrating on having a good time than, than, than studying. But when I did graduate, I kind of had this reality check. And that was because I was teaching at summer camps. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working with kids teaching foreign languages. Mm. I was only sort of 19 at the time, 20, that kind of, those kind of yeah. years. And I met these teachers who at the time were like late 20s. So they seemed ancient to me at the time. And they told these stories of how they lived in Japan, they were living in Chile, and they came back to the UK for summer work. And it just blew me away, because back then the internet wasn't around, you know, so things just weren't as exposed as, as they are now. Mm -hmm. So I met these people and they were just so interesting to me. So when I graduated, I was applying for jobs and jobs that I didn't want. They just, you know, but you're a graduate, so you feel... Yeah, you, know, you, you gotta get, do it. So then I saw an advert, a job advert, and at the time I thought it was hysterical. I mean, it's not actually that funny, but it said time for a career change. And career was spelled career like the country. And I thought, funny. oh, oh, good one. <laughs> so I, I looked into it and then I saw that I could get a job teaching in South Korea. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you didn't need a teaching credential back then. You just needed to be a native English speaker and have a degree, believe it or not. So I went to live in Korea and that was not so much to be a teacher. I didn't really even think about education as a route. It was more just to get out and see the world. Yeah. But I turned my hand to teaching, found out that I was quite good at it, made a career out of it in, in living abroad, 
Mm-hmm. So I lived in Korea for a while, Italy, Turkey, got credentialed in it. Um, and then just, you know, moved up the ladder, if you like. So went from teaching into sort of administration. I set up my own company, which failed in, in education. And that was a great experience as well. I and then bet. moved into sort of the administration side of things. And then into the business of education. Now, people are quite surprised by the business of education. They think it's very philanthropic. And they don't realize that education business right. is real business. And it's yep. in some ways really bad, in some ways really good. And, you know, you, you, yeah, it's a challenging world. So but I moved into that. And, and then about four years ago, I met the leadership of Dignity Health. So Dignity Health at that time uh, were the fifth largest healthcare system in the United States, mm-hmm. um, biggest in California. Since then, they went through a merger with a company called CHI, which is Catholic mm-hmm. Health Initiatives. And they created Common Spirit Health, which is like the family name of the company. They kept their brands in their respective markets. So if you go to Phoenix, Dignity Health is kind of ubiquitous. You know, it's everywhere. Right. And they're now the largest not-for-profit healthcare system yeah. in the United States. So they've got about 150,000, 160,000 members of staff, mm-hmm. $30 billion company. And I worked with the leadership there and we created uh, Dignity Health Global Education as a response to the lack of quality in healthcare or lack of consistency of quality in mm-hmm. healthcare education, the amount of money that was just being burned through without strong outcomes. And, yeah. you know, um, it really... It, was really flown. It was launched uh, publicly in April, I think April 19. Mm-hmm. And they, so they're our biggest shareholder as mm-hmm. a business. We're not part of their system, which is a good thing because you know, it's a large bureaucratic kind of monster. Sure, so we're, we're yeah. agile and, and that's kind of how we've got here. So we, we have presence in the UK. I'm in Canada at the moment where we have offices, Phoenix, mm-hmm. And it's all kind of blown up after a year. And But the, the road to that journey was seeing a silly advert that said time for a career change. And here we are 20 odd years later and um, doing this. That is so funny. Well, now that, I mean, knowing you, of course, I, <laughs> before us just jumping on here and recording this, um, I can see why that would be so funny to see something like that. I would chuckle over that and be like, ah, yeah. yes, I would like to do that. Yeah. Um, But I think it's so great because that's the thing is like sometimes when you talk to people about their journeys in life, right, there's no like full, we don't necessarily have, I mean, if you're lucky, because I don't know many people that are actually like, yes, that is what I'm going to do. Um, It's typically like I'm trying to find something that's interesting that you want to go after and then things just sort of fall into place after that. So I love that that's how you've kind of experienced this and come to this. I want to go back to this company that you started though, because I find this so fascinating. Some people are nervous to talk about something that they tried and maybe it didn't work, but I think that's actually such an important part of a learning experience and a journey and sort of probably led you to where you are today. So tell us more about that. Well, so I was uh, teaching languages, teaching English at the time and was, it was going quite well actually. And I had a lot of private classes and, you know, at the time, at the age, it was, a, it was a nice income and that kind of thing. So I thought, right, well, let's formalize this and create a company in a school. And so what I did is I created a kind of custom exam prep uh, English language school. And what I mean by that is sadly, um, if you look at IELTS tests or TOEFL tests, those English language tests, mm-hmm. they're not really indicative whatsoever of no. someone's language ability. No. They're indicative of how well they've been taught to pass an exam. Yep. <laughs> so what I did is embrace the notion that, right, if that's what it's all about, let's do it then. Let's do it that way. Yeah. So opened a company, did that. Then the, the reality check I had was, and the, the lesson from it was, is it grew quite quickly, mm-hmm. but it was too much about me. Uh-huh. Like, oh, I want to study with Andrew. I want to study with Andrew. And I hired uh-huh. other teachers. And then I realized, you know, you've got to be, quite uh, distant from it being about yourself all the time, mm-hmm. but also you've got to manage your growth. You've got to manage uh, the risk. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's probably what I didn't know at that age. Sure. That actually people are so focused on growing quickly and aggressively, they lose sight of the fact that, you know, um, there are other things you need to do. Mm-hmm. And now more than ever, if you look of course. at, particularly in the United States, if you look at businesses in the U.S., they're all about rapid, especially tech or ed tech, as I'm in, all about rapid growth. 
but actually it, it doesn't mean the model works, you know? Uh, and so that's what that really taught me. And also just not to be scared. Yeah. You know, um, you, you try, you fail. Right. And um, that for me was really important. So to be mm-hmm. brave. Yes. And I think and these are all like, to me, you're touching on things that are all so such important life skills that people forget. I mean, no matter if you're an entrepreneur or not, um, there are times that you sort of have to kind of put yourself out there and, and that level of confidence, just understanding that like, it's going to be okay, no matter what happens is hard to come by actually. Well, Kelly, I take that into my life now. Mm-hmm. Um, that lesson is so true. Um, by way of example, I've lived in lots of different countries and moved. And with my partner at the moment, she said, well, what about if this happens? When we moved to, uh, when we started spending a lot of time in Canada. And I said, well, if it happens, we'll just come back to England. Right. What's, like, what, what, what's the worst that's gonna happen? Right. And her, her reaction was, oh, yeah, I guess, right? Like, <laughs> what's the worst that's gonna happen? You know, I mean, it's very much a first world kind of problem, right? Completely. Um, but still, what, all right, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, That's so true. And I take that to most things now, not in an irresponsible sense, but, you know, you try There's your There's not really much you could, I mean, if you worry about, I can't remember what it is that my, the exact phrase that my stepfather has used for my entire life, but essentially it's like worrying about things before they happen. And mm-hmm. it's just like a complete waste of time. Like once it happens, just deal with it, whatever it is. It's also... Kelly, it's, it's quite a self-destructive um, streak. I was going to say they, self-fulfilling they, prophecy, really. Yeah, they, people crush themselves yeah. before they've had a chance to do it. Mm-hmm. And normally that stems from other issues, probably. But it's, it's not a skill as such, you know, thinking about that. But it's certainly something that you have to embrace that, again, it might not work, but what's the worst that's going to happen? And, and you know you do eventually get to a point where you, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. Right. So you, you should do it now before, while you have time to. And, you know, that fear of failure shouldn't, shouldn't worry people. But inevitably, inevitably it does, right? Yeah. And they'll say, well, I have children. I can't do these things. Children are robust. They're you know, actually wrong, quite amazing, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. They don't care that you, your car's a bit worse than it was last. They don't care. No. You know? So, you know, even that excuse, that reason, that rationale, yeah. Isn't, I, I have a child, right? She's, she's as robust as they come. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, you really got to take that chance and, and, and move forward. Yeah. I totally agree. So before we jump into DHG a little bit more, I want to ask you one quick question because you've mentioned to be, me before that, you know, your brother has these schools. So it feels like there's like some sort of special entrepreneur blood in your family. <laughs> But now that you're describing what you're describing, I'm wondering, like, is there something through childhood that sort of gave, because if there's at least two people in your family that I'm aware of that are willing to go out there and try something, was there something about the way that you were brought up? That- you know, um, so I have an older brother and a younger brother. My older brother, I share the same parents. My younger brother is with my, my stepfather and my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, me and my older brother, we grew up on the, on the let's say, the, the bad side of town. And... Okay. Uh, really quite poor you know uh, not poor in love but you know certainly in material yeah. wealth but looking back I know that at the time obviously yeah. it didn't mean much that but you know we, we where we grew up in the 80s became very drug infested and, and these mm. so you knew you had to get out of this yeah like even at that young age you my little brother thankfully for him had a slightly more stable kind of middle class upbringing which 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 served him well you know he's mm. a lovely lovely young man but for me and my older brother, I think it was the drive to do better. And, 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 you know, but my brother actually is an incredibly conservative chap in, okay. in terms of very measured. Interesting. But neither one of us wanted to get into education. He wanted to get into, he wanted to be, get into sports. And uh, by proxy of the person he married kind of fell into education kind of. He got exposed to it and then yeah. uh, invested in it. And he now has, uh, I think has 21 schools. Wow. And he is in partnership now with the largest K-12 company in, in, in the world. Wow. So in a sense, I suppose a bit like me, he's not worried about who he's working with and their scale, their size. Yeah. He'll, he'll take that risk. Uh, but he's probably more measured than me. 
mm-hmm. naturally. Um, <laughs> as the know, older, as the eldest. Yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so I think there is more the drive that yeah. we, we share. Yeah, like living through a a challenging, like, again, like you said, it's probably wasn't that prevalent um, as a child, but if, if, when you have that sort of like overcoming struggle scenario as a young person, I find that it just like instills a different mindset in a person. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I also think having that background, you're not, you're not worried about, scared isn't the right word, but you're not intimidated by people. You, sure. You're naturally a bit of a fighter. You have like nothing um, to lose, right? That's the way I would have put it when and, I was. And the, 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 that's funny you say that because the, the quite prevalent similarity between my brother, my older brother, and I, and it, I, I've heard this quite a lot of people, is that we somehow think there's a risk we could lose everything. Interesting. You know, you have that fear that actually the and it's a, people have this yeah. fear, and I I kind of do as well. Oh, I like, do. I do. This could all go wrong. Yeah. And if I if all goes wrong. I have nothing. Um, and you think the difference, I guess, though, from me and my brother is that normally that would restrict you. Right. For us, that's the motivation to keep going. More so that doesn't happen. Right. Um, so it's kind of counterintuitive, but I think we both share that kind of weird fear, which I think a lot of people do actually, if, they, yeah. if they've built themselves up, you know, that somehow you'll end up back at your mom's house. Right. You know, sleeping on the sofa somehow. Like it's never going to happen. But, um, it's a weird sort of feeling. No, I, I told, we, I, I do that, that too. I do that too. I'll, I'll think through, you know, whatever it is that's like sort of like stressing me that particular week, I'll be like, mom, I lo- I'm going to say this. And just in case my mom does listen, mom, I love you. But if I end up back <laughs> at your house, like this is going to be a real big problem. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So I think that that energy drives us forward to, so you, you get yourself in a position where that won't happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I, I just wanted to point that out because I just found that really interesting when you shared that with me. And I was like, I wonder if how, when you think about education though, here's the thing that I always wonder, because of course, like there's a lot of courses and we've talked about these with DHG too, like on resilience, and <coughs> other things, right? How do you recreate a situation like that, that you live, you feel the struggle mm-hmm. that is part of your DNA and teach that to someone else? So... That, that's almost the holy grail, right? Yeah. Um, so it's very, very challenging. Um, but the way, I, the way we approach programs at DHG is not, it's, it's academically underpinned. Mm-hmm. So the quality assurance is academically supplied by our partners like Duke or Arizona State or University of Arizona. Yeah. But the way we create programs is we bring people in from the field so we create lots of programs with, um, on a non-credit bearing side, particularly with practitioners. Mm-hmm. And then when students are studying on the program, they have a facilitator, like a mentor, a coach, a facilitator. Okay. Again, it's not from the academic side, mm-hmm. but it's actually, uh, for example, a retired CEO. So we work with one chap okay. called Tom Brink. He's been a, uh, the CEO, I think, of two healthcare systems. Mm. Okay. He, you know, bags of experience and I'm sure pretty much anything you can imagine of course he's dealt with it yeah Yeah. so for our students that's who they speak to every day and so the recreation of the stress and the worry like you say is uh quite challenging to do Mm -hmm. but having those real voices more practiced in theory right I think goes some way to doing it and what we've realized in our company in healthcare, and I actually know this from a languages background. When you're teaching languages, unless you actually go and do it, you're not gonna learn anything. Yeah. So I can teach you in a language how to shop at the supermarket. Completely. But until you go to the supermarket, it means nothing, right? Right. So um, the best way of learning is doing kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, so ultimately that's always the best experience, but if you have people around you who can guide you through it, show you it, help you deal with it, then I, I think that's a, a good second best. No, I hear you. Like it's almost like, like we were describing with the learning from an entrepreneur, right? Earlier before we hit record, you know, we were saying that it's, there is a difference when you learn from someone that's done 
Yeah. Um, and then of course that second piece where you learn it, you hear it, they share the stories, but then you put that into practice. Like I know growing up, I, I took Spanish all the way through school and I, you know, they were like, yeah, you're fluent in Spanish. But like the minute I went to a Spanish speaking country, I was like, whoa, because there were different dialects depending on where you went. My stepfather's family's from Puerto Rico. They did not speak Spanish the same way the exactly. teacher that taught me from Barcelona. So it's like, you know. Completely different. <laughs> well, and you know, the, the interesting thing about languages, and I always say this to people who talk to, people say, oh, I dreamt in that language in Spanish, let's say. So therefore I really understand Spanish. Well, no, because dreams are kind of self-fulfilling, right? right. They're, they're made up of what you know. I always say the test of languages is, uh, and being your, your typical Brit, go to the pub. <laughs> and if you can understand someone in a pub after they've been drinking and telling jokes and you understand it and you get it, well, you then understand the language. Because humor- I have, I have gone to an English pub with my husband and met his friends, one of whom was from Liverpool, by the way. And I have <laughs> no idea what he's saying, drinking yeah. or not drinking, so. <laughs> Well, exactly my point, right? So <laughs> humor is understanding language to a large extent, you know? And um, also people are drinking and it's very loose and yeah. casual. That's when you understand language, not yeah. when you have a dream that you've dreamt, you know? Right. Uh, right. And so you can apply that to every job, you know, in, in, into skills-based skills programs and education. Yeah. That eventually is the doing bit. So the programs we create, are meant to be applicable. Mm -hmm. So we make people do on the job projects. So we'll say, right, you need to go and do this, come back next week okay. and tell us how that's going. Oh, how do you guys track so, their projects like that? So we have facil the facilitators work on them with the, the students. Okay. And um, that for us is the best example we can give as an educator about mm -hmm. the doing and the reflection, mm -hmm. but not reflecting yourself, because everything you know, you'll do will make sense to you and will be great. Of course. Reflecting with someone who has a critical view and experience to be able to tell yes. you what they think. Yes. So that's the way we approach program development. Yeah. And uh, but I, as a former educator, you know, I, I stand by that model. No, um, I and I think I find it so fascinating that you get to work with people that are like you're helping people continue their progression. So they're already doing. Yeah. and learning and doing all at the same time, which is just really fascinating. So going back to this, like when this all started with DHG, what was the, I know we talked a little bit about some of the, you know, reasons why DHG became to be, but like, what were the challenges that this hospital system was dealing with? Well, um, let's take, there's a few different quite separate areas. So let's take um, the financial aspect. If I were to take the top 10 healthcare systems in America mm -hmm. and say to you, what do you think they're spending on tuition reimbursement, education, training in a, in a year collectively? Know. Yeah, you're, you're speaking what? over half a billion dollars. Wow. That's a 10. Wow. If you went and sit, uh, sat down with all those 10 and said, where's your money going? Most of them would have no idea. The challenge is, is they view education as a retention tool, mm. not as a quality tool. Okay. That's one of the challenges in healthcare. When actually it should be both. Yeah. Retention is really, really important in healthcare because, you know, the turnover of staff is so high. But it doesn't mean it's one or the other. Right. So in healthcare, you have a very dominating force of for-profit colleges. Mm -hmm. Now, by its nature, I'm not against for-profit. I'm just against anything that's bad. When sure. you teach people. And sadly, many of them are not only for profit. And, and why bad. did that happen, by the way? Because they, again, it's because the price points they ha they're happy to go down to oh. meet the tuition reimbursement thresholds of many healthcare workers. So, you know, for example, we have, a, we have some degree programs at our company, which are quite expensive, but they're not aimed at a 22-year-old nurse. They're aimed at experienced professionals who have a stable career. But if you're looking at where a lot of young nurses come from, they're not, you know, they're not Harvard-educated people. You know, they are typically young women mm -hmm. who are looking for a career, and healthcare gives that to them. Yeah. Stable, quite well-paid. So 
but at the same time, when they start their journey, they're not earning big money. No. So if they look at tuition reimbursement as a way to get educated, but they can't say, right, well, I've got $5,000 a year. I can go to any college I want. Right. They have to be realistic with their, with their, with their tuition reimbursement. They don't want to spend right. too much money themselves, not because they don't care, but simply because they, right. they it's just practical. To. Yeah, I get it. Life. Yep. So the, 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 the for-profit space became quite dominant with nursing because mm-hmm. they, they charge the rates that nurses will pay. And again, great, if what you're providing right. is good education. Right. But when we did our analysis in the beginning of these colleges, you know, I won't mention them by name, but we all know them. Some of them had completion rates of 11%. Wow. 11%. And, you know, many 20-odd percent and things like that. Now, I know adult learners by their nature have... Sure, lower, yeah. Lower completion rates. And that, that's, but, you know, 11%. So, you know, and they're quite predatory. Mm-hmm. And they're spending vastly more money on marketing than they ever do on quality. Oh, yeah. And that's not me doing people down. Me and you are in this sector. Mm-hmm. We know, right? We know what's going on. Yeah. And so when I looked at that, the conversation with the healthcare system was to say, do you know, <clears throat> do you want to spend your money on this? Do you want your nurses having this experience? And if you talk to a lot of nurses, they have a bad experience with education. They, they're not into it. Not because they naturally don't want it. Just their experience of it is quite negative. Mm. So how do you create an experience which is positive, accessible, yeah. and um, you know, high quality? Mm-hmm. And in healthcare, that's the name of the game for me. You need to tick those three boxes. Otherwise... Okay. You got it. So healthcare systems are spending a lot of money on education, which is sub-quality, my, in my mind, very much subpar mm-hmm. education. <clears throat> and that was definitely one of the biggest challenges. Um, and some of the other challenges were just um, perception. How do you get healthcare workers to have a positive mindset around it? Mm-hmm. That's really quality. But the final thing was, you, you, you find schools, they're called healthcare schools. They're not really, they just teach mm-hmm. nurses. Healthcare is weirdly indicative of life. Every job you can imagine in the other world exists in healthcare. Right. So let's take, you know Britain well, you know, your husband's a Brit. Let's take the NHS. Mm-hmm. The NHS is a beast. It's a Goliath. Re- can you imagine how big their real estate department is? No. It's, it's around $4 billion. That's wow. what it is. Yeah. Right. Just imagine the property they run in London, the mm-hmm. value of that. Mm-hmm. Who is thinking, oh, we need to educate healthcare real estate people? No one. No one. So then let's take cybersecurity, which is very yeah. pertinent. That's the, the one I was just thinking of. Very <laughs> pertinent. And yep. we, we're building this, we're building programs in healthcare cybersecurity with it's huge. The, with the poor. Yeah. The number one, a healthcare is the number one attacked. I bet, because it's the most information about a person. 80% of all malware attacks in America are aimed at healthcare. Wow. Then let's think about data, mm-hmm. unstructured oh. data, healthcare. In the last couple of years, $30 billion of litigation, oh, yeah. healthcare. Yep. So yes, we can educate nurses, but we need to understand ethics, compliance, data, clinical practice, Everything. management, leadership. These are all huge issues in healthcare, mm-hmm. which healthcare schools, they don't, they don't deal with that. They deal mm-hmm. with nurses because nurses are seen as the, the cash cow. Yeah. They're the big group. Let's go after them. But in actuality, what healthcare systems need is they need all of their staff to have better business acumen, mm-hmm. obviously clinically be stronger, understand ethics of compliance, understand business, yeah. understand cyber awareness, understand, yeah. you know, um, Topics which are really relevant to healthcare, which are, you know, really underserviced. Mm-hmm. Think about medical lab workers. Oh. There are thousands of them. Now, if you're a medical lab technician and you transition to a medical lab scientist, which is kind of a, like an RN to BSN for nursing. Sure. But that uh, career progression, on average, increases your salary by over $30,000 a year. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. And for a family... Like we get quite blasé about money in the modern world because we're so wealth and celebrity content. $30,000 a year is a real jump. And that changes your family's standing. It totally does. Who, 
Do you know which universities offer medical lab scientists programs? Probably no, not. No, I don't even, I can't even think of any. I know a ton that offer the medical tech stuff. Yeah. And so the like, University of Cincinnati have a tremendous program in that space. Wow. And again, who's looking after those people? You know, they're the people doing their testing. So you're in COVID, who do you need? Yep. Yep. You need these medical lab people, right? So again, our role and, and the challenge that to make people understand in the beginning mm-hmm. was, yes, we'll do nursing. Yes, we'll do these things. Obviously, they're, they're a big audience. They're really important. Of course. But healthcare needs a lot more yeah. than, just, than just that, which wow. is why we now offer a very broad spectrum of, of programs to, to meet that need. That is amazing. And when you think about it too, like as we were just describing earlier, the people like you have these, um, that former CEO um, of the health systems that is actually like helping facilitate a course, let's use that as an example. Now that you've described this, I'm like, how fantastic is it for, let's just use a nurse as an example, like nurses now, if you think about it in this way, or anyone going into the healthcare field, has so much opportunity and you actually want to keep those people in because once they have one breath of experience, if a nurse was to take their knowledge that they build in all of that time working with patients and what, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but like, you know, that and take that into another area that is maybe like less hands-on, but mm-hmm. still that understanding brings a whole new, I mean, for the health systems, I mean, I can only imagine you'd want to keep those people in as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And the experience is really important. Mm -hmm. But also the the nature of transferable skills is really important. Yeah. In healthcare. So let's take a good example. One of our nursing, our nurse leadership program, which we offer with Duke. Mm -hmm. um, Fantastic. fantastic, Our most popular program. Mm -hmm. Fantastic program. There's a unit on it on finance for nurses. Okay. And we assess nurses. We, we do survey data. We, you know, we, we capture a lot of information about them. All of them dread it. Hmm. Number one. Number two, afterwards, it's our most popular unit. Because they're like, I didn't understand finance. But the people teaching them are from that world. Yes. Apply it to their job. And when I say finance, I don't mean high finance. I don't mean, you know, raising money and that kind of thing. I mean... Finance skills, yeah. P&Ls. Because um, what happens in healthcare is if you're a nurse, you transition into management, boom, here are your Excel spreadsheets, go right. do it. It's daunting. So those kind of things are great, but the best way to learn it in healthcare is from someone who's done it. Yes. And uh, that's why it's important in healthcare, you know, for us, and like you said, healthcare to retain these people because not only, you know, um, have they done it themselves, mm-hmm. they can, uh, they understand what that person's going through, right? So they understand that nurses are actually quite scared of this stuff. Yeah. And how do I, how do I teach them this? So yeah, that, that kind of um, information is invaluable. That's amazing. So do you guys, does, do DHG just serve the hospital system, that the, the healthcare system that, or like anyone? Anyone. Okay. So uh, we, we serve Service Common Spirit Health, which is obviously mm-hmm. a, a nice thing to have. Yeah. Uh, don't get me wrong that comes with challenges you know they're not they're not a friendly client <laughs> you know they're still a business right they still I get it they're, yep everyone's you know, it's, it's the real world um but we also service healthcare systems and hospitals and clinics in in all, all across america so for example in arizona i think we work with 19 hospitals and um mm-hmm. healthcare systems mm-hmm. uh, we work with norton health for example the biggest one in kentucky mm-hmm. so the reason why that's important is because, and me and you spoke about this once, Kelly. If you look at healthcare, it's like a merry-go-round. Yeah. One person leaves one company, goes to another company, comes back, goes there, comes back. Because the, the turnover of staff is, is huge. Wow. 50% of nurses leave it within one year. So what you need to know is not so much just how you keep people, but that the people coming in after them have the right skills and competencies and education right. that you're going to need. Right. So one of the reasons we, we do that, of course, is the fact that it's a, for the common good. There's a common good in it. Not, I mean, there's good business in it, but there's sure. actually common sense in it. You yeah. want that system to be educated well, because their staff, by the way, at some point, are coming your way. Yeah. So that's really important. So we teach 
as a business, we're primarily kind of an enterprise business. Mm -hmm. So we teach, uh, people will send their staff to us to get educated. But also we're open enrollment. So if a nurse says, I want to go do this program, can I enroll? We, of course, no problem with that at all. Yeah. Um, so, but primarily we're an enterprise business, but actually the majority of our students don't come from our health system backer. They actually yeah. come from other That's so interesting. Now, how do you try, okay, so let, like, let's lean into that sort of the, the high turnover situation, because how would a, you know, hospital or whatever, you know, healthcare organization understand or know that that particular new employee or current employee has had a certain amount of training? Well, it's interesting. Um, that was one of the questions that we first raised ourselves when we set this business up. It was, we can do our own leadership programs, right? Mm -hmm. We could do it. And they do that. And not the healthcare systems, they have their own education program. So Kaiser will have a leadership program. Right. Norton has a leadership program. But we didn't do it that way. We brought Duke in to do leadership programs. So we have a healthcare leadership academy. And the reason we did that is because that credential is then mobile. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say it that way is because if I go to, you know, the Kelly Bailey uh, right. healthcare system and you, I've got the Andrew Malley leadership program, you might say, well, I don't care about Andrew Malley's leadership program, right? But if, if, if I've got a Duke program, that academic credibility travels. Yes. So that's one way to make credentialing a mobile thing, you know, okay. um, work with schools to underpin the quality that everyone recognizes that credential. Mm -hmm. But in terms of turnover of staff, um, it, it, it's interesting because if you take nursing, which is obviously the biggest turnover, the notion that one credential covers every nurse in America is absolutely bananas. So BS, an RN or BSN typically, Mm -hmm. every nurse in America has this and somehow they're all the same. But if you're a nurse who works in rural North Dakota right. and you're a nurse who works in downtown Atlanta, your world's uh, chalk and cheese, right? So that's one problem with the, 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 the attrition rate in healthcare is that people aren't being hired to the right jobs mm -mm. because we don't understand the skills and competencies they have. Mm -hmm. So if you're a nurse who's worked in a rural critical access hospital, you probably have lots of really solid skills around independent thinking, around doing multiple tasks, because you have to be a jack of all trades in that environment. Whilst yeah. if you're a nurse at Cedar sinai in Beverly Hills or near Beverly Hills, you probably have a bit more structure, more targeted role, and you're very, very good at that. But you probably, you don't have to hustle in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so those people have very different skills and competencies. Now, if you just change those two jobs, well, don't be surprised that that nurse isn't happy in that job and that nurse isn't happy in that job. Mm -hmm. It's because it's not what they're made to do. Mm -hmm. And so one of the problems I firmly believe in healthcare is that you, you can set people on a pathway to their degree and their nursing degree and, and, or, or their administrator's degree, all great. But you have to educate them in the skills and competencies they need through their journey. Yeah. So our most popular programs, strangely, are non-credit bearing programs hmm. because and we're about to launch a program with Arizona around rural healthcare management. Yeah. So rural healthcare management and urban healthcare management. Totally different. Not the same thing. So you need to recognize it. If you hire someone from downtown L.A. to come do healthcare management in Fargo, that man or woman doesn't apply, you know, and, and so you've got to so meet, fascinating to meet me people where they are. We can talk about this in the most commonsensical way, but this is happening all the time. And it's, and healthcare is not the only place that it's happening. It's like, how, how did you expect this person with this background to like fit here? It's just so fascinating. <laughs> oh, an interesting thought, uh, Kelly. When we think about the best trained people in, in, in the States, in the US, let's say, mm -hmm. people often jump to the military. Mm -hmm. These guys, they're like robots. Totally. But they're not born that way. So in a year, in a good year, granted, a unit in the military might do six months of training. Mm -hmm. If you're a, a veteran, a leader, you know, high up in the military, you would have spent four years in leadership education. Mm -hmm. Four years. 
That is why they're good at it. Yeah. If you looked at the equivalent, not just in healthcare, in many sectors, but in healthcare, is it any less important a job? Mm-mm. Arguably, you could argue the other way, couldn't you? Um, but are people in education getting six months a year of education? They get six days a year, probably not. Yeah. And part of the issues we see, let's take the, the police. Obviously, in America, you've got contentious issues around uh, policing. Mm-hmm. Fair or unfair or grounded in fact or whatever it may be. Yeah. There are undoubtedly, you know, there's undoubtedly contention in that area. Completely. How often are police officers being trained compared to the military? They're just not. Nope. And the issues that you face are often because of that lack of training and education. So in healthcare, when you look at ethics and compliance and legal issues, for example, litigation, they're not based on, you know, huge um, misdemeanors. No. They're based on people making mistakes because mm-hmm. they didn't know better. Yeah. And that's where most of the litigation in the U.S. comes from, a mistake. But if it was baked in on more of a daily basis, this sort of learning, um, then <laughs> maybe less mistakes. Uh, well, you know, they say practice makes perfect, right? But it's not really true. It's perfect practice makes perfect. Right, right. right. And that's exactly the case. Healthcare workers need not just their BSN, or their masters in healthcare administration, check that box, check that box. They need ongoing, relevant, pertinent education in yeah. how to, but not just how to do something. Thinking, thinking of COVID, they need to understand how to look after themselves. Hydration, nutrition, sleep, mindset. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with stress? How do you, you know, and that needs to be ongoing all the time. And that's one of the big challenges in healthcare, convincing employers that education is not just about keeping people, you will help solve these problems if you, if you invest in your staff. Yeah. I think it's turning. I think people are beginning to understand it more. Well, I think especially about nurses, I just happen to know a lot of nurses. We have a big um, healthcare system really close to where I live. And so there's just like a lot of nurses here. But I have family in the medical industry as well. And you think about this, like, and, and I, honestly, this pretty much applies to a lot of like frontline workers that we were not paying attention to pre-COVID. But if you have a bad day at home, and you're going to try to like care for patients or deal with stress in a work environment, like how is that going to translate? And that is actually, so it's, it's actually really important to focus on some of these things that again, may not like an employer might not be like, well, that's not workplace related, but actually it is. Well, exactly. So if you're a nurse talking to you about hydration, doesn't seem workplace related. Right. But if you're doing a 12-hour shift in a COVID environment, let's say, less or so now, but certainly in the beginning, where no one really understood what to do with it, that's an important, because that person's got to make mistakes. Yeah. Because they're tired, they're dehydrated. And again, mm-hmm. it sounds like I'm making a tenuous link. No, no, no. Actually, it's, it's not, not. Because it's factual, my, my friend know? that's a nurse, like this is the one thing she talks about. She has four children. So this has been like an extremely difficult time for her to begin with. Mm-hmm. let alone when she comes into work, she's like, I cannot take a sip of water for 12 hours because there's no time to use the restroom. And that might sound ridiculous, but it's just the fact of it. And so I know for me, and, and hopefully anyone else knows this, like if I miss a meal because I'm just too busy that day, or I don't have enough water or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like that actual, like typical, just well-being stuff to take care of your body. Like I cannot even function yeah. and I'm not taking care of patience so yeah so people think of skills and competency and understanding as always a an, an, a, uh, a thing you do yeah. so I can fix something mm-hmm. but actually a lot of it as well is just knowledge and understanding things and you know um healthcare is one of those things where you need your people to be at their best yeah and if you, do, if you don't invest in that it's so true they won't be at their best. And therefore, there are very tangible outcomes to that. Yeah. And that can be patient experience, but literally without being overly dramatic, life or death. So, yeah. um, we, you know, I, I am a big believer in that, you know, a, a healthcare, I mean, everyone in general, but healthcare in particular, need to be far more invested in mm. reskilling, upskilling, constantly skilling yes. their, their staff. Yeah. 
And, and I, I don't say that because you, I run a company in that space. I say no, that. No, but I love, yeah, I you care it. about this. And, yeah. and you just happen to take that passion into business, which is, yeah. you know, it actually- Kelly, let me give you a mind-blowing, mind-blowing example. Do you know that some states, so you know continuing education credits, continuing education units, CEUs, mm-hmm. sometimes they're called CEMs or whatever, right? Yeah. Do you know there are some states in the US that have zero requirement for that? Wow. So you have to do some, as part of your nurse license, you need to do some courses every year around infection control, washing your hands. Great. Mm-hmm. But in terms of continuing education credits, some states have a minimum requirement. Maybe it's 20, or 30 yeah. over two years or whatever it may be. Some states in America have no requirement That's actually for ongoing learning. Right. So let's take that as a real world example. Let's think of nutrition. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit older than you. But still, we grew up in a similar generation whereby were your parents talking about carbs and no. protein? Like, I remember my mother having to hammer beef for stew. It was yep. The meat was that bad yep. <laughs> back then. Yep. Whilst now you have your children, my child is probably fed, everything's organic and you know yep. where it's come from. And da, 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 right? So just think about your own personal knowledge of nutrition mm-hmm. over the last... 10 to 20 years. Just think yeah. about what you now know that your parents, you know, what you wouldn't feed your child, right? Yeah. Now think if you're a nurse and you got educated 10, 20 years ago, and this is not me bragging on nurses, it's simply to say, why would you know something now if you've not been educated in it? So yeah. if you learned something 20 years ago, That's now it could be very, very different. Yeah. And if you don't keep that updated and refreshed, you don't know more just because you're around it. Mm-mm. You could be learning the wrong thing. So and if you think about, I mean, it's, it, that's applicable to anything. A lot of people tend to put like the technical pieces to it. Like I know my father was a dentist and I actually became a dental assistant at a young age. So I even remember when new technology came into the dental office, like all of a sudden we had the panoramic x-ray machine and everyone, someone had to come in, train us how to use it. And that person had to come back multiple times throughout every year to update us on the latest and greatest of how we were going to take these panoramic x-rays. And it's just the same thing. It's just, there's a lot of other unique layers to each of these roles that we need to focus on and not just like the one view of like a patient. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So the notion that Let's take Arizona, I think. Don't quote me on that. But I think Arizona has no continuing education requirement. Do you want to give your child to that person? <laughs> right? And that sounds really unfair, but they shouldn't even be in that situation. That person shouldn't even be in that situation. No. So um, to, to where they're not being trained on a continual basis. Mm-hmm. And so the problem with healthcare historically has been that there's more of a battle to keep staff than continue to educate staff. And they're firefighting a lot. You know, yeah, that makes so sense. they don't invest in it. So Common Spirit Health, at the time, Dignity Health, and Dignity Health still exists as a brand, um, obviously saw that, wait a minute. Right. Something's not, something's not quite right here. You know? Yeah. And so they, they invested in, the, in, in that problem and we set the company up. Um, but still, frankly speaking, we'll still speak to a lot of people and it, that, a message doesn't resonate with them. Wow. You know, which is quite, quite a scary thought. But... I think increasingly. Yeah, it's coming to aware. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I already know that you're doing this with these professional athletes, like bringing them into this learning environment. Um, But when you were just describing all of what we just talked about, my mind was actually going there because I think when you talk about this practice every day and what a professional athlete or anyone who has, you know, been in sports at an extremely high level what they need to do to keep their mind and their body at peak performance to be able to be successful in their field is of another level. And I find it so fascinating that you're bringing this in to a healthcare environment, just like we described with the CEO, the former CEO being involved. Now you're bringing in people that have actually lived through this you know, experience that not a lot of people get to live through. And I'm so curious to hear what they're going to be offering in terms of training and how you're thinking of this? Yeah, so this notion of transferable skills. 
Um, don't just because you work in healthcare, don't find the best person in healthcare to teach you something. Find the best person in the world to teach yeah. you. But apply it to healthcare. So we're doing a few things in that space. So on the sports side, we're working with, at this point, we, we're, we're launching a mini MBA, which mm -hmm. in itself, there's nothing special in the mini MBA. It's a, if anything, a kind of overused term. Uh, but we're doing it with the University of Arizona. But the notion here was, right, there's obviously COVID there. So we've got to think about resiliency, but not in a way nurses and medical professionals had it rammed down their throat. We've got to think about this really different. But also, how do you bounce back? Yeah. Right? So really negative experience how do you translate that into a positive experience how do you uh refocus keep energized that kind of thing and we thought about it from that point of view so we brought in uh three athletes one's a chap called john godina he is a multiple time world champion in the shot put um olympic medalist and also set up uh, a large and very successful Olymp uh, athlete training organization called altus he's trained tens and tens of Olympic athletes. Amazing. Another chap is Max Starks. He is, you know, two, two time Super Bowl winner with the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, a few years ago. Another guy is Asso Bolden, who's again, world champion, 100 meter runner, multiple time medalist in the Olympics. And these guys have had defeat, they've had wins, they've had bad time, but what they have supremely is they've learned how to focus. Oh. And they're not good at what they do purely because they're naturally talented. Mm -mm. Yes, they are, obviously. But also because practice, mindset, focus. Now, if you want to talk to Max, he uh, <clears throat> wins the Super Bowl with the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's impressive in itself, right? Mm -hmm. But he, then, then you break that down a bit further. He, went, he was, had 100 million people plus watching him on TV. He played in a stadium of maybe 100,000 people watching him yep he has won it twice mm -hmm. quite close to each other so he understands the, the resetting yep he's in a team of 50 people you know who have won and max will tell you he, his team that won a super bowl they weren't the best players that he's ever played with mm. but they were the best team yeah so amongst all that and that's just a part of the narrative amongst all that are there lessons in there that we can learn from and having sat down with these chaps and spoken to them, yes, they understand not just winning, but they understand mindset, refocusing, mm -hmm. challenging the norm, teamwork, pressure. And that's not to equate an, a, a, a shot putter with an, a nurse. But it's to say that there's a lesson in there. Yeah. That you can learn from. But also there's actually an interest in it. It's, it's human interest. In oh, it. yeah, exactly. You look at these guys like superheroes. Like, I will never understand what it's like to stand on an Olympic rostrum. No. So when they speak, you listen, you know? So we're using them as that transferable skill, as that, that unique voice that you, we know people will listen to. Yes. Well, let's take another example. We're currently engaged, I can't say who right now, but we're currently engaged with one of the best acting schools in the world. Mm -hmm. So you'd say to me, what's healthcare and acting got to do with each other, right? Why, why would you put the two together? Mm -hmm. Well, let's think of communication in healthcare. Yep. I mean, you could, it could be a nurse telling a family that someone's died. Yep. It could be you're dealing with a healthcare system. It could be you're an executive. It could be communication in healthcare is so important. Yes. So, who better to get to teach you how to articulate, respond, be uh, spontaneous, improvise exactly. than I was totally school. thinking the improvis like the improv right away because. In, in those environments, like you do not know what is going to come at you that day. And you have to, your mind has to be ready. And honestly, the only way for your mind to be ready to respond to things immediately is to practice doing that over and over and over again. Yeah. So we're bringing in a group who are the best in the world at what they do mm -hmm. in the terms of communication, teaching actors, blah, blah. not because we're trying to create actors, but we're trying to create people who know how to communicate, talk. I love that. Meet the circumstance. And, yeah. You know, and actually it's interesting as well, you know. Yeah. No, this is, I mean, the, you, you've <clears throat> really gone so, in my mind, so outside of the box of how we typically look at educating people. But I think it's so fascinating, like really, really, truly. Um, I mean, I, as you describe it, I'm like, oh, I want to take that course. <laughs> well, what's the point? I mean, 
it, it, one of our taglines for our new program, the mini MBA, is champions come in many forms. Mm-hmm. And that's tr- very true. So true. But if you want to learn how to be a champion in whatever you do, who better to learn from than someone who is a champion? Yeah. It's like we discussed this earlier. Universities teaching entrepreneurship is kind of a weird idea. Not to say it's bad, but just it's, sometimes it doesn't go together. But who better to learn from than someone who's actually done it, right? So right. Um, absolutely in our DNA of, of that notion of transferable skills into healthcare, for sure. Wow. That is so cool. So we're coming close to the end of our time. And I really could go on because I feel like we didn't even get to fully touch on the concepts of you know, what you guys are trying to do with these like learner employment records and track people and all that good stuff. Cause that's actually really exciting. Um, so we're, I think we're going to have to like actually continue sometime soon, <laughs> but, but for the, um, because we do have time, um, and we shouldn't go so far over, um, what I'll leave you at least some space to give us an open-ended question, just like last parting thoughts from Andrew, what's on your mind? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think, um, if I take just skills in general, but healthcare, obviously more specifically, what are you doing if you're not investing in your people? Mm -hmm. What are you doing? And it's a nice thought. People say it a lot, but how many people are genuinely doing it? And don't just invest in your people out of some token mindset, like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a liberal boss. No. That isn't what it's about. If you're not investing in your people, what are you going to get? You know, you'll get what you put in, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at healthcare, if ever, just take a healthcare system in general. If everyone was a bit more ethics and compliance knowledgeable, if everyone was a bit better at clinical practice, if everyone had a bit more business acumen, if everyone had just a little bit more, I don't mean they're expert, but they have yeah. a little bit more grounding in these general areas, think of what that would mean. you'd save millions of dollars in litigation probably, you have better outcomes for your patients, you'd have better budgeting, you'd use your data well. And that's that's really my thought process I try and explain to people. It's not about grandiose degrees and MBAs, and those are wonderful things. I congratulate anyone who invests in education. (laughs) Um, But obviously this is, let's talk about skills, baby, right? So don't just give people money to get an MBA, invest in their skills. And if you're not, you've got a problem. And yeah. so that, that would be my, that's always my frustration in, in healthcare. That makes People a lot of sense. And in all honesty, like, I'm, I don't want to take away from these parting words because they really are fantastic. But when you think about it this way too, when you focus on that for people, just those little incremental pieces, like you mentioned, they actually bring that back into their life outside of work which, you know, again, I'm one of those people that is all about social impact. But if you think about how much that could change their family environment, change their community, like broader, 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 there really is something to be said about that. So two of the key words I often use with the kind of programs we offer are confidence and competence. Mm-hmm. They both are very, very interconnected. So yeah. let's take the finance module I, I mentioned to you for, for nurses. So if I'm a nurse, transitioning maybe from some kind of clinical area into business or management administrative Mm -hmm. role. You need to be competent, but you need to be confident. Mm -hmm. And that naturally, as you say, goes hand in hand with how you then respond generally. If you're feeling more confident, more competent at work, that will also impact, you know, your life at home, et cetera. And so those two key themes very central to what we do. I love that. Those are confidences, like my favorite all-time foundational. I say it's a skill. I'm just going to go with it, but I love it. (laughs) Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. And for anyone that is more interested in finding out more information, um, it's dhge.org, right? That's right. Yep. And they're on um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you know, follow because he's doing and the whole organization, wonderful people doing really, really amazing things. Uh, Andrew is most often found on LinkedIn from a social media platform, right? Yes. I'm learning to embrace social media more, more, more fully. 
You're doing, um, you're doing, I see your stuff. You're doing good. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And if you guys want to listen in to let's talk about skills, baby, or watch whatever your preference is, you've got YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. You can find me, Kelly Ryan Bailey on all the various social channels. I try my best to, but you know, like we all have life. <laughs> Um, I would also love to hear some feedback, rate, review. Um, let me know what else you'd like to hear. It'd be really great. But Andrew, thank you again. We're going to have to do this another time and just sort of like continue this discussion because I feel like there's a lot more. Love all of the things that you're doing. Uh, thank you. Hope you guys have a great day. Yes. Thank you, Kelly.